Chapter 16, Part 1 of Woman Suffrage and Politics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Woman Suffrage and Politics The Inner Story of the Suffrage Movement by Carrie Chapman Catt and Nettie Rogers Schuler. Woman Suffrage by Federal Amendment, Part 1. So far, the story of suffrage, victory, and defeat has been the story of state referenda. We have been covering the time when, for years, that state-by-state -state effort spun the main thread of suffrage activity. When more states to full woman suffrage had been the fell word that the suffragists of earlier days had encountered from friend and foe alike. Go, get another state, Theodore Roosevelt counseled as late as 1908. I don't know the exact number of states we shall have to have, said Miss Anthony, once an amusing hour. But I do know that there will come a day when that number will automatically and resistlessly act on the Congress of the United States to compel the submission of a federal suffrage amendment, and we shall recognize that day when it comes. As has been seen, that dream of woman suffrage by federal amendment antedated all the efforts to win woman suffrage by the state route, and it is not to be forgotten that from the earliest days the will and the work to make the dream come true went along concurrently with the work for and in state referenda. Before the Civil War, it seems to have occurred to no one that suffrage for women might be gained through federal action. Public opinion in all parts of the country was strongly resentful of any unusual assumption of authority by the federal government, and no precedent existed upon which to base a theory for such action. The Civil War welded the loosely federated states into an indissoluble union. The word nation, for the first time, found its way into the list of words frequently used as descriptive of the United States of America, and the acts of reconstruction represented a degree of centralized authority which before the war would not have been tolerated. Although apologists for the departure from previous custom explained the acts of reconstruction as military necessities, and although the conflict concerning the distribution of power between federal and state authorities continues today, the fact remains that hostility to federal legislative supremacy was greatly modified after that period. After suffragists had made their energetic and heroic struggle to prevent the enfranchisement of the Negro without the inclusion of women in the plan, and when, despite their protests, Negro suffrage was achieved, with woman suffrage left out, the 14th and 15th Amendments at least furnished precedents for a federal woman suffrage amendment and this at once became the ultimate aim of the women's campaign. Observing the frequency with which laws, both state and federal, were set aside by court decisions and observing, too, that the 15th Amendment had been declared constitutional, the women of that day took pains to frame a woman's amendment in the same precise phraseology. A group led by Miss Anthony and Mrs. Stanton wrote the amendment, designated by the suffragists for many years as the 16th, as it was introduced in the Senate by A. A. Sargent of California on January 10, 1878. Owing to the death of the friendly chairman of the Committee on Privileges and Elections, Senator Oliver P. Morton of Indiana, an adverse report was made, but a minority report, accompanied by a lengthy address, was presented by Senator George F. Hoare of Massachusetts, in which he said, No single argument of its advocates seems to us to carry so great a persuasive force as the difficulty which its ablest opponents encounter in making a plausible statement of their objections. We trust we do not fail in deference to our esteemed associates on the committee when we avow our opinion that their report is no exception to this rule. At that same date, President Hayes received a deputation of suffragists and a petition to the Congress was presented with speeches on behalf of the amendment. With so promising a beginning, suffrage hopes centered again on federal action. But between that date and June 4, 1919, when the amendment was finally passed by the Congress, lie forty years and six months. During that period, the amendment was continuously pending, having been introduced in the same form in every succeeding Congress. In the Senate, it was reported with a favorable majority in 1884, 
1886, 1889, and 1893, and without recommendation in 1890 and 1896, and with a favorable majority again in 1913, 1914, and 1916. The House Committee gave favorable reports in 1883 and 1890, and adverse reports in 1884, 1886, and 1894, reported without recommendation in 1914, 1916, and 1917, and favorably in 1918, the Senate committees making six reports only and the House committees five in the 35 years between 1878 and 1913. While other influences contributed to this record of inaction, the most outstanding cause was that Southern Democrats, although a minority, held the whip and controlled the suffrage situation. In 1878, when the Woman's Suffrage Amendment was introduced, the nation consisted of 38 states and was accordingly represented by 76 United States senators. The constitutional requirement of a two-thirds vote in the Congress for the submission of an amendment and action by three-fourths of the legislatures for ratification made the support of 51 of these senators and 28 legislatures necessary to its adoption. To secure this result, the vote of five senators and the ratification of five legislatures of secession or border states had to be obtained, in addition to the united support of all northern and western states. During the earlier portion of this time, senators from the seceding states would rather have committed harikari than vote for any federal suffrage amendment, and the border states were little less pronounced in their vindictive denunciation of suffrage by the federal method. Three prospects only for success appeared. 1. An increase in the number of states so that the total could outvote the South. 2. A change of attitude on the part of Southern senators. And 3. A more insistent demand for action by Congress than the nation was then in a mood to give. None offered immediate hope, but in the end, all three aides were secured. The suffragists of 1878 could not believe that the nation would long allow its record of enfranchisement of illiterate men fresh from slavery and its denial of the same privilege to intelligent white women to stand unchallenged. They turned to the states, firm in the faith that they would soon furnish a mandate to which popular opinion would yield, and through which the congressional impasse would be broken. Had Republicans recognized the indefensible discrimination against women created by Reconstruction history and given party aid to state amendments, which obvious consistency demanded, without whip or bayonet, woman suffrage would have swept from west to east long before corporate interests had gained sway over party councils. The east and south would have yielded then to the momentum of the triumphant movement, as they did 40 years later, and there would probably have been no need of a federal women's suffrage amendment. However, the Republicans, in full control of most northern and western states, blocked action in these states as effectually as the Southern Democrats did in the Congress and in southern states. So it came about that the dismayed suffragists had to gird on their armor in grim preparation for war with the nation's prejudice, should it take till the end of time. They determined to hold fast the demand established in Congress, to bring to its support such gains among the states as they could wrest from the well-nigh impossible conditions imposed, and then, when politics should indicate the hour, to concentrate their efforts again on a federal amendment with the aim of finishing the task by that method. Formulated at that early day, this remained the policy of the National American Woman Suffrage Association to the end. When it became plain that no action could be secured in Congress from the committees to which national suffrage amendments were referred, the suffragists attempted to induce Senate and House to establish standing woman suffrage committees with more time and sympathy to give their cause. As a result of much labor for three years, a so-called select committee was obtained in both houses, the Senate renewing this committee in 1883 and the House declining to do so. The Senate committee in time became a standing committee and so remained until the end. In the House, the amendment was usually referred to the Judiciary Committee, 
A further attempt to renew the suffrage committee in the House was made in 1884, at which time Miss Anthony said, This is the 16th year that we have come before Congress in person, and the 19th by petition. The early Senate committee did not prove to be an asset to the women's campaign. In the long list of committees, it was held to be of low rank, and during the 35 years of Republican control, the chairmanship was assigned to a Southern Democrat. Senators from the states of Missouri, North Carolina, Florida, Arkansas, Virginia, and Georgia, to whose people the idea of suffrage by federal act was infuriating, held the post during this period. Said one of these chairmen to a fellow senator, There is no man living who can answer the argument of those women, but I'd rather see my wife dead in her coffin than voting, and I'd die myself before I'd vote to submit that amendment. Upon another occasion, Miss Anthony, bearing her threescore years and ten, closed the hearing with a review of the forty years of effort to secure justice for women and made so pathetic an appeal for action that the great room full of women, with faces drawn and tears running down many cheeks, involuntarily turned their eyes upon the chairman from Virginia. He was clearly perturbed and under the control of emotion. What would he say? What would he do? How could he refuse so unanswerable, so appealing a request? Presently they discovered the source of his emotion. He was in need of the spittoon, and no indication of more sympathetic interest did any of these Southern Democratic chairmen ever show. During a portion of Grover Cleveland's administration, the Senate became Democratic. Then, the tables being turned, a Republican was given the chairmanship, and that fearless friend of woman suffrage, George F. Hoare of Massachusetts, being appointed, no time was lost in presenting a favorable report. Based on this favorable report of the committee in 1886, a vote on the amendment was secured in the Senate in 1887. The vote stood ayes 16, nays 34, absent 26. The debate is a distinct landmark, as Southern Senators laid out with care the argument upon which the Northern opposition was based through the coming years. Already the reaction had set in against the wholesale and indiscriminate extension of the electorate, and the plea of all opponents for the next generation was, There are too many incompetent voters now. Why double them? Let the extension of suffrage stop now, said Senator Beck of Kentucky. We have been compelled in the last ten years to allow all the colored men of the South to become voters. There is a mass of ignorance there to be absorbed that will take years and years of care in order to bring that class up to the standard of intelligent voters. The several states are addressing themselves to that task as earnestly as possible. Now it is proposed that all the women of the country shall vote, that all the colored women of the South, who are as much more ignorant than the colored men as it is possible to imagine, shall vote. Not one, perhaps, in a hundred of them can read or write. The colored men have had the advantages of communication with other men in a variety of forms. Many of them have considerable intelligence, but the colored women have not had equal chances. Take them from their wash tubs and their household work, and they are absolutely ignorant of the new duties of voting citizens. Why, sir, a rich corporation or a body of men of wealth could buy them up for fifty cents apiece, and they would vote, without knowing what they were doing, for the side that paid most. Said Senator Morgan of Alabama, We have now masses of voters so enormous in numbers as that it seems to be almost beyond the power of the law to execute the purposes of the elective franchise with justice, with propriety, and without crime. How much would these difficulties and these intrinsic troubles be increased if we should raise the number of voters from 10 million to 20 million in the United States? That would be the direct and immediate effect of conferring the franchise upon the women. The effect would be to drive the ladies of the land, as they are termed, the well-bred and well-educated women, the women of nice sensibilities within their home circles, there to remain, while the ruder of that sex would thrust themselves out onto the hustings and at the ballot box, and fight their way to the polls through Negroes and others who are not the best of company even at the polls, to say nothing of the disgrace of association with them. 
You would paralyze one-third, at least, of the women of this land by the very vulgarity of the overture made to them that they should go struggling to the polls in order to vote in common with the herd of men. No other vote was obtained in the Senate until 1914, and none at all during this period in the House. The years passed with hearings before the committees of both houses of every Congress and the circulation of the printed procedure of these hearings, interviews with members, occasional petitions, deputations to the presidents, and every year a resolution from the National Suffrage Convention calling upon Congress to submit the suffrage amendment. Until 1895, all the annual suffrage conventions were held in Washington, in order that suffrage delegates might plead with their representatives in Congress to submit the amendment. But after 1895, the conventions were held alternate years in other cities, meeting in Washington during the first session of each Congress only. There followed the period between 1896 and 1910 when the business of securing from the country a mandate on woman suffrage made such slow headway. The Congress was accepting the inaction of the country as a cue for inaction in Senate and the House, and the inaction in Congress, composed as that body was of the leaders of political parties, was taken as the cue for inaction in the states. In order to focus the attention of Congress once more upon women's suffrage and that of the country upon congressional obligation to the women of the land, it was voted at the annual suffrage convention held in Buffalo in October 1908 to roll up another petition calling for the submission of the federal suffrage amendment. This method of agitation had been abandoned many years before, not only because petitions seemed to produce no direct result, but as it was no longer the custom to present such petitions publicly and with speeches, they were robbed of their publicity effect upon the country. It was now proposed to resume the plan, chiefly for its agitational value. With the view of learning in advance how much effect such a petition would have, the National Suffrage Association asked President Roosevelt to receive a deputation, which he did. The deputation asked whether a petition of a million signatures would influence him to recommend woman suffrage in his annual message to the Congress, as the association wished to know before going to the labor and expense of such a petition. He replied with a courteous but extremely emphatic assertion that it would neither move him nor the Congress. Asked for advice as to the next step, he promptly gave his memorable dictum, Go, get another state. When reminded that Republican legislatures would rarely submit amendments and that when they did, his party would not support them at the polls, he failed to sense party responsibility. Reminded that his gubernational appointee had robbed the women of Arizona of the vote by veto in 1903, he expressed surprise, although vigorous appeals had been made him for intervention at the time, and he had at the time declared himself powerless to rectify the wrong. Despite the discouraging interview, the petition work was undertaken, but state suffrage leaders, upon whose interests success depended, had neither faith in the result nor energy to give in addition to that required to meet the continual state legislature campaigns. An honorary committee of highly influential men and women allowed their names to be joined in the appeal, and a nationwide educational campaign on behalf of the federal suffrage amendment was the result. Federal suffrage meetings were held, sermons preached, and hundreds of editorials called for the submission of the amendment. The petition, with 404,000 signatures instead of the 1 million intended, was brought to Washington in April 1910 where the annual suffrage convention was in session. Although there was regret that suffragists had been too much occupied to bring a larger number of names, they recalled that President Lincoln had considered 300,000 a sufficient mandate for the Emancipation Proclamation as a war measure. In gaily decorated automobiles, each carrying the petitions of a state and bearing its name on spectacular banners, the procession moved from convention to Congress where it was met by an honorary committee, and in the state marble room and the House Judiciary Room, the petitions were handed by each state president to her senators and representatives. The custom of no speeches was broken, and an eloquent address to the Senate upon the occasion was made by Senator La Follette of Wisconsin. 
At that convention for the first time in suffrage history, a president of the United States, William Howard Taft, addressed the national gathering of suffragists, and among other things, this is what he said. The theory that Hottentots or any other uneducated, altogether unintelligent class is fitted for self-government is a theory I wholly dissent from, but this qualification is not applicable here. The other qualification to which I call your attention is that the class should, as a whole, care enough to look after its interests to take part as a whole in the exercise of political power if it is conferred. A hiss was heard. Miss Shaw, who was presiding, arose with a quick, Oh, my children! Hushed quiet followed, but newspaper headlines carried the news, suffragists hissed the president, to the remotest corner of the land. It was denied that the hiss had come from a delegate, and the next day the convention by resolution apologized for the unfortunate lapse in good manners. Nevertheless, delegates agreed among themselves that the word Hottentot in connection with their appeal had struck like a whip across their faces, and with this interpretation the press also received the news, some newspapers criticizing the president for his untactful use of words and the suffragists for the hissed protest, with equally caustic comment. The entire country found the incident worthy of discussion, editorials, resolutions, sermons, sometimes on one side and sometimes on the other followed each other, and the wave of publicity started all over again several times. Hottentot did not help Mr. Taft, but it did contribute indirectly to a curious revival of national interest in woman suffrage. After the 1910 suffrage convention, once again the Congressional Committee of the National Suffrage Association opened headquarters in Washington and began the first systematic and complete poll of Congress, including all old and new candidates for election in 1910 and 1912. The impulse given to the movement that year by the gain of Washington with the astounding majority of 24,000, followed by the gain of California in 1911, emphasized the question in the public mind to a degree regarded as phenomenal and had a notable reaction upon the Congress. The presidential campaign of 1912 was approaching. The National Suffrage Association had appealed to every dominant presidential convention for a suffrage plank since the first attempt in 1868. After 1900, campaigns had been more thorough, all delegates having been individually memorialized, and more urgent efforts had been made to secure the sympathetic cooperation of leading politicians. Hearings had been usually granted before resolution committees with more or less courtesy, but platforms had remained silent. Democratic presidential platforms carried no expression concerning woman's suffrage from 1868 to 1916, and the Republican platforms had no word since the splinter of 1872. End of chapter 16, part 1.